The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I was meeting with some other pastors just recently and discussing this a problem that many people seem to think that Christianity is a matter of trying to be good enough for God. And if this is the case, some people figure, why even try? I believe that in the, in the minds of many unbelievers, they try to live their lives with a kind of wistful hope that perhaps they will be good enough in God's sight to be let into his heaven. And sadly, as uh, the other pastors and I were reflecting upon this, many Christians do not live all that differently from this way of thinking. While evangelical Christians know that they are saved through Christ, saved by grace, many live the Christian life as though it's a struggle to be good enough for God to like them or to accept them. This kind of performance orientation leads to a works-based rather than a relational-based approach to God and the Bible. Similar to what Pastor Light mentioned in his sermon last Sunday morning, how many people see Christ as lawgiver, but not as Savior. Well, tonight what I want to do is take this marvelous Old Testament passage... And help us to see the very gracious and relational nature of God's saving work. Not only in our salvation, but in all of the Christian life. This passage echoes the shorter version in Ezekiel chapter 11. That offers this unique phrase that God will give us an undivided heart. Well, may that be our prayer as we hear God's word and hear God's word preached. May God grant each of us an undivided heart. I pick up in Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, This is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. 
and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people, and I will be your God. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Let us pray. Father God, once again we would ask that the meditations, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our great redeemer. Amen. Several years ago, my daughter received open-heart surgery up at Hershey Medical Center to repair an ASD. This procedure to, to patch the hole between her upper chambers is actually one of the most common and least risky of open-heart surgeries. This past fall, little Katie Insman, a newly adopted daughter in our congregation, received a more significant surgery that went in to repair one of her lower chambers and to reroute her blood supply to the lungs so that it's more properly oxygenated. I believe that many people see their spiritual need as a mere patch job on their heart. As God needing to reroute things and renew things in order that they might receive more spiritual life. But the Bible, as we just read, makes clear. We don't need mere maintenance. We don't need just a patch job. We need new hearts altogether. You and I need an entire heart transplant And only the great physician can perform this kind of operation on us. The promise here in Ezekiel that God will give us a new heart comes in context of the Lord's rebuke on God's people, on his idolatrous people who had worshipped foreign gods and had suffered the consequences, exile in the land of Babylon. The master surgeon pledges to work on his people, not because they are worthy and not because they can pay him back in any way, but for the sake of his own holy name. Dr. John Meyer up at Hershey Medical Center, the same doctor that did surgery on my daughter and Katie Insman, takes a team of medical professionals to South America pretty much every year for the better part of a week or two, to perform surgeries on the children of the poor. People who could never possibly afford these costly procedures. Just like these poor, sickly children in impoverished nations south of us, we as God's people are just as helpless and needy and undeserving and unable to pay for the services God would provide for us. But what is also clear from this text is we're not only undeserving, we are ill-deserving. For it says here that God's people had profaned the name of the Lord before all the nations. The very people who should have been magnifying the reputation of this great and holy God have desecrated his, his holy name by their idolatry, by their wretched immorality. Nevertheless, 
because he is a gracious God. The Lord pledges to clean and restore his people so that all the nations might know that he alone is the sovereign one. He is God who will yield his glory to no other. A righteous God and a Savior who forgives all of our iniquities and heals all of our diseases. I believe there's at least three lessons we can gain from this text as we look into this promise of a new heart for new people. God gives us his spirit to grant us a new status, a new identity, and a new relationship that we might be a people for his praise and his glory. Verses 24 and 25 establish this idea that we have a new status as both a free people and a clean people. Now, the Lord had warned the people of Israel through Moses many centuries before that if they were to follow after false gods and to worship in the manner of the pagan practices of the surrounding nations, then they would be cast out of the land after many generations of the Lord long-suffering with his people. Enough was enough. And the Lord sent Israel packing off to Syria and later sent off Judah into the land of Babylon. The people of Israel who were once slaves in the land of Egypt now found themselves in bondage once again amongst foreigners. The Lord humbled his own people. The people that failed to uphold his holy name were sent to serve their enemies and their enemies' gods. And yet the Lord who is compassionate resolves to set his people free, to return them once again homebound as a chastened people. They didn't have much, but they had their freedom. Much like our forefathers, we are a people who have been set free from our bondage to sin through the life of death, resurrection, and reigning power of Jesus Christ. We as Americans enjoy the status as the freest nation on earth. And yet our political freedom does not compare the surpassing greatness of the freedom we have to worship, know, and serve the living God to the new and living way opened up through Jesus Christ. God's people are not only free, they're also clean. They had defiled themselves in pagan worship through cult prostitution, child sacrifice, bowing down to images and idols dedicated to created things that cannot save, nor deliver on the day of wrath. The Lord says in verse 25 that he would sprinkle clean water and make them clean. The reference here is likely to the ritual of cleansing, whereby if a person became defiled by the presence of a dead body, that he would be washed with water, prepared with the ashes of the sacrifice of the red heifer. In the great servant song of Isaiah 52 and 53, 
the Messiah is introduced as one who will sprinkle many nations. This great high priest will not only purify Israel, but all peoples from all nations who will call upon him as Lord. Our passage here is one that, as it links the sprinkling of water with the work of the Holy Spirit, it's very likely the very passage that Jesus is referencing. In John chapter 3, when he's discussing with Nicodemus the new birth, Nicodemus was confused about what it meant to be born again. He failed to make the connection between the cleansing rituals of water and sacrifices, and how these were but external signs of an inward reality, of a genuine heart change by God's Spirit. What Nicodemus did not understand was made clear to a man named Naaman, the Syrian official who wanted to be clean from his leprosy. He had been, at first had been infuriated by the instructions of the prophet Elisha to go and wash himself seven times on the Jordan River. He considered this task beneath him. But once he did it, he became a new man because he understood that the God of Israel was the only true God with the power to heal and to save. Where all of his successes had failed to provide, he now found, as he humbled himself before Elisha and Elisha's God. Likewise, we are called to submit ourselves to him. Like dirty children, we come to the Father and we need a bath to be cleansed of our filth and our idolatry. But the result is not only the fact that we are clean, we're also given a new identity. Just as Naaman became a new man, so the Lord promises his people a new identity in verse 26, a new heart and a new spirit. I get frustrated sometimes when I hear messages from messengers who present Christianity as a kind of mechanical step-by-step for better living. They focus on mere externals. Do this. Do that. I call it Nike Christianity. Just do it. Just follow these things and you will please God. What is sad in this approach to Christianity is that it's performance-oriented. As somehow if we just had more knowledge and willpower, then we can serve God and be happy. What is lacking here is a heart orientation that begins with a deep understanding of our heart's corruption and our desperate need for our hearts to be transformed through the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone can make us new people with a new nature. You recall that after Samuel had anointed Saul to be king, he promised him that the Spirit would come upon him, that he would prophesy he would be changed into a different man. Saul rose up as Israel's leader, a great champion who would deliver Israel from her enemies. 
He led many successful campaigns until he became proud and fell into disgrace. Saul refused to obey and to submit himself to the Lord. And so it cost him the kingship, and the spirit departed from him. Saul was left to himself, a coward, self-centered, self-protecting, a weak and frail man. Saul's short-lived life change reminds us that a person can experience the presence and power of God for a season without any real change of heart. What we need is a new nature. This new nature is illustrated in verse 27. The Lord pledges to remove our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Idols were often crafted out of stone. God's people have been warned that those who worship them shall become like them. See, false worship leads our hearts to become stone cold and hardened. They become beastly and misshapen. While on the run from Saul, King David and his men took it upon themselves to watch the flocks of a rich man named Nabal. And then David became infuriated, deeply insulted one day when he sends his men to Nabal to request food. And they are rebuffed harshly. Only the wise and courageous actions of Nabal's wife, Abigail, protected his household from destruction. Well, the next day when Nabal was confronted by his wife, Abigail, when he learned that what had almost happened to him and his household... The text in 1 Samuel 25 says that his heart failed and he became like stone. What a fitting picture for a man frozen in his greed and selfishness. Such is the case of people who are heartless before the Lord and his people. When God gives us a new heart, We become human again, restored in God's image, and renewed in a right relationship with our Creator and our Redeemer. In Psalm 73, Asaph confesses that in his self-centeredness, he had become like a beast before the Lord. But once he had entered into the temple of the Lord and had a God-sized perspective on his suffering, he has this to say, My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The books of Deuteronomy and Jeremiah repeatedly warn God's people to circumcise their hearts, to keep them tender, humble, and teachable before the Lord. Paul expands on this idea in Romans 2.29 when he says, No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. A new heart and a new spirit enable and grant to us a whole new identity in Christ. By God's Spirit, 
We embrace the fatherhood of God as his well-loved sons and daughters. This new identity is well summarized by Paul in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul goes on to say likewise in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. I believe that many people in our culture today suffer from an identity crisis. People don't know who they are. All kinds of grown-ups live as though they're children. Many men have what I call the Peter Pan syndrome. They refuse to grow up. There's an epidemic of marriages where spouses are leaving their marriages simply because they don't want to do it anymore. You know, the only solution to this great social problem It's for people to stop seeking their identity in selfish pleasures, in financial attainments, in personal success, in all kinds of other idols, but to seek a new identity through a relationship with God, an identity rooted and grounded in Christ that alone can stand against the onslaught of a culture hell-bent on self-destruction. I remember years ago talking with a girl in college about the gospel. And she insisted that she was not good enough to become a Christian. She just couldn't imagine trying to make the lifestyle changes in order to be acceptable as a Christian. And she was right. She couldn't make those changes. But she was missing the whole point. Because she was so self-focused, she, like many people, failed to see the relational nature of coming to God and realizing that by his power alone can we be changed and transformed. If you look with me now at verse 27, we see that when God says he will put his spirit on us, his spirit will move his people to follow his decrees and to keep his laws. It's only by God's Spirit that we're able to render any type of obedience. The flesh is powerless to respond to God's law in a way that honors and pleases Him. Sadly, many Christians think similarly to this girl I knew back in college. They stop here at verse 27 and think that it's all a matter of rules and laws and obedience. Perhaps that is your experience. Perhaps you had a parent who communicated to you that all he or she cared about was your behavior. Just obey me was the message you heard. Or perhaps you in the past sat under preaching that repeatedly told you to be a good Christian without grace and no relationship. You know, obedience is important to God, but it is not primary. I focus now on verse 28 
where we hear this repeated refrain throughout Scripture. You will be my people, and I will be your God. How many times do we hear that in Scripture? I counted at least 16 times, and I'm sure I missed several. This is a repeated refrain throughout Scripture. You will be my people, and I will be your God. See, you need to understand that the giving of the law at Mount Sinai came after deliverance from Egypt. God revealed himself first as redeemer to his people before he gave them a law to obey him as their creator. The whole, the Decalogue in Exodus 20 has a preamble. It says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, the land of slavery. You see, the law only makes sense in context of relationship. Obedience follows after a new heart, a new spirit, and a right relationship with our God. Obedience does not merit relationship. It confirms relationship. Obedience is the natural overflow of an identity bound up with the Father. Paul says it well in Ephesians 2, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're saved by grace, through faith, to do good works. And not only is our justification by grace, our sanctification, the very way in which we grow as followers of Christ, is by grace. Paul goes on to say in Philippians 2, as he exhorts us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. This echoes back to Ezekiel 36, verse 27, that the Spirit would move in you to follow his decrees and to obey his laws. You remember Jesus' most famous parable, the prodigal son. You'll recall that the father had the elder son's obedience, but he did not have his heart Now, regarding the younger prodigal, the father did not have much by way of obedience, but he had his son's life and heart back. God wants us more than he wants our obedience. It was the tax collector in the temple who cried out, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner, that went away justified, and not the Pharisee who was obedient and self-righteous. You know, if your goal is obedience, you can achieve that. You can achieve that without the Spirit and without a new heart. There are people who are good at being good, who have no more relationship with God than a statue. Consider the Mormon people. Here are a people you will find, you'll be hard-pressed to find a better people. 
more good-natured, more kindly, serving their neighbors and taking care of their own. But the Mormons do not worship the God of the Bible. Their God is a perversion of our Creator and Redeemer, a mere demigod who is more like man than God, to whom the Mormons hope to become like through good works and labors here on earth. There are many Muslims who lead exemplary lives, who loathe the radicalism of extremism and terror. There are Jews, atheists, nominal Roman Catholics and Protestants who no more know the Lord than a slice of bread and yet still lead very religious and moral lives. All these people lack a new heart and do not have a right relationship with God. And their good works done in the flesh and not in the spirit will merit them nothing on the day of God's judgment. They are a reminder to us that our obedience as Christians is but the fruit, the overflow of our abiding in Christ by faith. God calls us into relationship with himself and moves in us to do the good works he's prepared in advance for us to do. I think Paul expands on Ezekiel 36 well in an extended passage from the middle of Romans chapter 8. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit, who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it, For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may share in his glory. I hope you don't miss the relational connection, that obedience, that following God's commands only comes as the Spirit lives within us. It is the mere fruit of a relationship with God as Father, as a well-loved son or daughter of the living God. You see, I believe that God is like Geppetto, who wants a real boy, who crafts this little puppet, who has to go through many trials and tribulations. He was told by the blue fairy that uh, if he is good and truthful and brave, he will become a real boy. All of us are in process, trying to become real again. But the truth of the gospel is you and I can't be good enough. We're not that truthful. 
we are not brave and courageous enough to earn or merit some transformation into newness in relationship. Christ alone was good enough. Our Lord Jesus, who is the truth, was perfectly truthful. And he alone engaged upon the most courageous, heroic rescue mission the world has ever known to rescue and salvage us, this great shipwreck, and restore us and bring us back to the surface, remake us and renew us to be something glorious for the praise and honor of our living God. You see, the marvelous message of the gospel is that we are brought into a living relationship with God as Father. So Christian, I plead with you to stop striving to be good enough. To come to him. To come to him through the one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone was good enough on our behalf. And as you grow with a new heart and a new obedience, may it be like the joy of a child who walks hand to hand with his daddy. And may these words pierce your soul, for you will be my people, and I will be your God forever and ever for his praise and glory. Let us pray. Father, thank you for a new heart, a new spirit. Thank you for loving us with an everlasting love. Thank you for sending your son, the one who alone was good enough who brings us into the adoption to make us co-heirs with him. Help us, O Lord, to live out the life of a Christian, led by your Spirit, with joy and gladness, for now and evermore. We pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.